Hello there, this is Thomas, and we are now watching Tokyo Fist. It's Kamoto's film from 1995, um, which is about to begin with uh, a montage that really juxtaposes the raw physicality of boxing and the raw physicality of injury and getting injured with uh, the daily grind lived by uh, this film's protagonist, the insurance salesman Tsuda who is played by the director, Shinyatsu Kamoto. I already mentioned on my uh, previous commentary tracks on this set that uh, Takamoto's films, his works, show uh, quite a neat evolution from film to film, which is of course uh, something that's really great about his box set because you can watch them in sequence and really see uh, these things changing, seeing the, evo the evolution of his work from film to film. And I think that evolution is never clearer than in the transition from Tetsuo 2 to Tokyo Fist. So if you're listening to this and uh, you haven't watched Tetsuo 2 yet, uh, I suggest you turn this off right now and watch Tetsuo 2 first. I mean, you can, it's noticeable from the first scene that this is a direct follow-up to Tetsuo 2. I mean, the, the, and the motif of boxing, which is already present in Tetsuo 2, uh, the blue cityscape, um, the interesting contrast between the colors of blue and red, uh, the hero being, you know, your standard salaried employee, the salary man, uh, the sweating profusely in the city on summer days, um, you know, the general, the general uh, discomfort and numbness, f and that is felt by the character, which becomes, uh, which becomes really the main motif um, from Tetsuo to onwards and into Tokyo Fist. The only difference, of course, is Tokyo Fist is not a science fiction film. Um, so the, there is, between the two films here, there's a very clear focus on present day life, very much unfiltered by any sort of genre, um, genre frameworks. The gentleman you just saw very briefly as the cook, the chef in that restaurant was uh, Tokito Shishiota, who I already mentioned during his cameo on Tetsuo 2. Um, you can see him do uh, cameos in uh, several films by his favorite director. He also pops up in The Snake of June, and he also uh, can be seen in, uh, in numerous uh, Takashi Miike films, including Dead or Alive and City of Lost Souls, uh, and in Gozu, of course, in which he is the title character. Yeah, in dealing with this, with this focus on on present day life and and the the, the contrast of uh, the numbness of the city and and the physicality of the body. Um, moving into this film compared to Tetsuo Two, uh, it's also very much more expanded and more developed. You know, it no longer ends with this idea of beauty and destruction, like Tetsuo Two did. But destruction here is really a, a stage in a longer process. So the destruction is sort of a, a cocoon stage from which a new life emerges, but also continues.
And this time, as I said, uh, it's uh, Shinyatsu Komoto himself who plays uh, the everyman protagonist, uh, which, of course, Tomoro Taguchi, who can be briefly seen in this film, uh, played in the Tetsuo films. Um, Tsukamoto generally tends to play like like the villain, the villain part, you know, the third the third party outsider, who in this film is of course is played by Koji Tsukamoto, his own younger brother. But on films like in the Tetsuo films or like in Nightmare Detective, uh, he is uh, he tends to play more uh, the intruder. So it's only on Tokyo Fist and, uh, and Bullet Ballet, and in a certain sense Haze as well. You know, that's a slightly different case in terms of the construction of the characters. Uh, so it's only Tokyo Fist and Bullet Ballet really where he plays um, the, you know, the, the, the ostensible protagonist in the, in the love triangle structure. It's also interesting when he sees that, uh, that he has a glimpse of that boxing gym. Uh, of course, gradually that grows to be into a bigger theme, but uh, we see him already sweating and, and being very uncomfortable in this you know, unnatural, entirely unnatural environment of concrete and steel. And of course, that sort of sweating and, and, and physical science is entirely different in nature from the sweating that is done by boxers. Sweating is for, for the character of Tsuda merely a nuisance. So here we see the home life of uh, Tsuda and his wife Hizuru, who is played by Kaori Fuji, who um, sort of takes over from actress Nobukanaoka, who played this kind of part in Tetsuo 2. Um, Fuji at that time had was an actress already, obviously, um, but had done mostly like uh, cosmetics commercials. She was more model slash actress at that point. She'd done uh, a couple of V cinema films, straight to video productions, and uh, after Take Tokyo Fist, which for quite a few people involved was a bit of a, a catalyst and spurring on their, their careers, she would appear more regularly in, in feature films. And uh, most noticeably, I would say, a Swallowtail Butterfly and All About Lily Shushu, both directed by Shunji Ui, those are probably the most uh, high-profile films that she was in after Tokyo Fist. And she also pops up again in, uh, in Haze for Tsukamoto and alongside Tsukamoto. Um, she, for Tokyo Fist, she won a Best Actress prize in uh, the Takasaki Film Festival in Japan, which is not huge in any, in any sense of the word as a film festival or as an event. But uh, it's it's it is some sort of recognition, and it is uh, at least the recognition of that uh, that Tokyo Fist formed a change in her career. This is a great little contrast here, where we have the the physical decay that he glimpses in that uh, in that that cat, which is fascinating and repulsive at the same time, which sort of expresses the seed for uh, the later transformation uh, that will come from him and that come will come from inside him. You know, just like the protagonist from Tetsuo 2, you know, but this time there's no need for the metal bolts or anything symbolic uh, coming from a, a, a genre sci-fi framework.
And then it, it's juxtaposed, of course, with the hospital room where his father lies dying. I mean, it's uh, the hospital room is even more clinically brought across than, than the outside world. You know, everything, of course, in, in a hospital, typically there would be decay and sickness, but it's, it's completely hidden away. Everything is impeccably white. It's almost angelic, this vision of this hospital room. And, and outside in the city, basically, people are trying to do the same thing. You know, that cat, is, when he comes back from the hospital, that cat's already been removed and the decay has been wiped away. Um, but through the reaction of Tsuda, I think what Komoto is trying to say is that uh, it's all fine and dandy to have your, you know, your living environment be, be clean, uh, but you need the opposite. You know, it's necessary to have a view of uh, uh, nature, even in the sense of nature, nature falling apart. You know, you cannot have, you cannot have the positive, or at least you cannot understand what is positive without any knowledge or exposure to the negative. Yeah, and the results, if, if there's nothing like that, if there's no opposite, you cannot relate anything and you cannot appreciate what you have. So the result is going to be numbness or, or worse. So here is the boxing trainer, one of three boxing trainer characters in the film. Uh, we have the actor Naomasa Musaka, of course, who was uh, briefly in the first Tetsuo, the doctor, was glimpsed uh, in, a, in a flashback. Um, I said in my commentary for Tetsuo that he uh, uh, was mostly a stage actor at the time, and uh, he became, almost immediately after Tetsuo, uh, quite a prolific film and television actor. Uh, he appeared the following year in uh, two films, well, one, the following year, one film by Juzo Itami, of course, the director of Tampopo. Uh, the one that he appeared in was still of Golden Geisha, and then soon after that in Mimbo, The Gentle Art of Japanese Extortion. So uh, he also appeared around that time in Kinji Fukasaka's The Triple Cross, and Sumo, Do, Sumo Don't by Masayuki Suo, who, of course, would become the later director of Shall We Dance? And then he also became, quite suddenly, a very prolific actor in television dramas. So for him, Tetsuo was really quite a turning point, even though his appearance in that film is also already known, just quite brief. So we've seen Tsuda going for checkups because he's had the chronic chronic fatigue and dizziness and thinking he is sick but it's simply the result of the city lifestyle as i said not being represented to good kind of balance in life and also basically being treated like a like a slave by <laughs> by his employer uh, which is of course the great contrast with the strength exuded by the boxers even that slight glimpse that he had in the beginning is enough to to emphasize that That scene with the magazine shoot is also really interesting, uh, especially in the light of uh, the kind of clothing that the character, the character of Hizuru, Tsuda's wife, wears. These are very shapeless dresses. In the magazine photo, of course, she's in a, she's in a tight uh, bathing suit. 
suggesting that she can't find an outlet for her own desires. I mean, they have, they can't even remember the last time they had sex together. Um, again, that's a, a reference back to Tetsuo 2, where the same situation was true for the couple, the married couple in that film. Um, so her desires have been sort of suppressed in order to play the good wife after uh, after getting married, but are now coming coming bubbling back to the surface. Um, incidentally, at the same time that uh, Kojima, the boxer, and uh, as we all discover, childhood friend, classmate of our protagonist Suda, the moment that he pops up. Um, and his appearance out of nowhere, of course, um, stirs uh, jealousy in Suda, who we've already seen getting jealous because of that photo shoot. Um, and like like the confrontation with uh, with the decay that makes his character realize something is alive inside him, that jealousy and that anger is at least an emotion, is a feeling. Um, which he normally doesn't have. The only feeling he normally has is discomfort. <laughs> well, it's obvious that uh, Hizuru is uh, enjoying Kojima's presence and Kojima's physicality. But um, the film never never follows any any very obvious lines of course it's a very uh, it's, it is a, a love triangle but the way the characters are written uh, is really uh, very uh, intentional to not follow standard patterns in this kind of typical narrative you know love triangle as we can see here when kojima thinks that it is going to go <laughs> the, the regular way and she just completely blocks him out and even as uh, later she will move in with him, uh, things are never never follow any clear cut, uh, cliché lines in terms of developing the love triangle. So, as I mentioned, Kojima, the character, is played by uh, the director's younger brother, Koji Tsukamoto. Um, really, the story of putting the film together parallels uh, the story, as you know, the story in the film. You know, he's, he's, in the film, it's it's the story of two of you know childhood friends that have gone their separate ways for years after leaving school. And uh, then they're reunited and they sort of pick up exactly where they left off. And um, for uh, the brothers, Shinya and Koji, it was a very similar situation where when they were kids, they were very close and they, were, they played together and even made films together. As I mentioned in the earlier commentaries, Tsukamoto used uh, his father's 8mm film camera to make a number of shorts while... Uh, he was a high school student and started in, uh, in middle school around 14. And uh, Koji would often help him 
as an actor or as a crew member. And the, one of the, the little things that they made together was a thing called Bruce Koji, in which uh, just to, to use up the remaining film on, on, on reels, Tsukamoto would shoot a little bits and pieces, and one of those was Koji twirling a nunchaku, pretending to be Bruce Lee. And uh, he popped up in a few other of the, the you know, in a few roles in the, some of his other, in China's other uh, early, early shorts. Um, and at the time, he remembered he really enjoyed Koji's performances. And it was when he was a kid, he he considered his little brother to be a genius actor. He said. Um, but eventually, uh, they were sort of like, they each went their separate ways. Shinya Tsukamoto went more toward the arts as a, as a university student. Koji tended more towards sports, uh, started boxing in high school, eventually became a, a, a chef in a hotel restaurant, uh, training in the mornings and then going to work in the afternoons and evenings. Um, and Koji had his first match at the age of 23. Uh, apparently he lost and was beaten quite badly, so he didn't have a match again uh, at all. He focused on becoming a, a, a trainer himself for the next five years until he became uh, at around the age of 28. He felt like he wanted to get back in the ring again. And uh, their mother became very, very worried and uh, asked uh, Shinya to, uh, to talk him out of it. Um, really, Shinya and Koji would only meet because their, their lives were so different and by that time Shinya had started making films and getting recognition as a filmmaker. So they would basically only meet once a year at New Year's gatherings. And um, very often Koji would uh, tell stories about working at the gym and working uh, with different boxes, some of them good, some of them bad and had lots of stories to tell. And at some point a journalist friend told Koji he should write a book, but Shinya told him, no, 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 keep your, keep your stories, we're going to use them in a film one day. So when the, the, their mother asked Shinya to convince Koji to not get back in the ring, Shinya chose, to, uh, chose the solution of suggesting they make a movie about boxing together. And that was the very start of Tokyo Fist. Now, um, Shinya Tsukamoto tends to, take, tends to take a lot of time uh, making his films. And Koji, of course, was aware of this fact. And he realized that if he was going to do this, if he was going to uh, play a lead part in the, in his new film, he was going to have to quit his job. And he was really head chef at the time at a pretty fancy uh, Japanese restaurant in the, in the Ginza area in Tokyo, which is about as fancy as you can get. Um, but he, yeah, he decided to quit the job. And the result was <laughs> four months of unemployment because there were several delays. Uh, the script still needed to be uh, developed they were still getting the money together, they were still doing casting. For example, Kaori Fuji was not cast until quite late. Um, so 
eventually Koji spent four months unemployed uh, training in the gym and uh, thinking of uh, thinking of how his character and how uh, how the fights were going to go because he was going to do the fight choreography and in the meantime Shinya joined him at his gym and in fact he had joined him a little bit earlier already <laughs> with the intention of convincing him to quit his job and uh, go, go and make the film together But of course, uh, Koji had not made the film, he had not acted in anything since those little 8mm shorts they had, they had made as, as high school kids. So uh, during the first dialogue rehearsal for Tokyo Fist, uh, Koji and Kaori Tsuji um, played some scenes and, and Shinya recorded this on video and then played them back for Koji afterwards and Koji was quite shocked. I realized that he really had to uh, uh, step up his game in order to uh, play scenes in a film opposite a professional actress like Kaori Fuji. And clearly stepping up his game is what he did because as we can see his performance is, is really quite impressive in this movie. And in fact um, he won the Best New Actor prize or he was voted the Best New Actor of 1995 uh, by the Kinema Junpo, of course the Japan's most famous and oldest still running film magazine. So uh, that really uh, solidified an, the acting career for Koji. So in, in the end, his choice to quit his job as a chef uh, seemed uh, quite uh, a good one because he appeared in a great number of films after Tokyo Fist, um, including several by, here we go again, uh, Takashi Miike. Um, including such films as Full Metal Yakuza, and Ley Lines and Silver. And also you can see him in several films by his own brother, Shinatsukamoto. Notably he pops up in Gemini, uh, Nightmare Detective, he has quite a large part, and uh, in Killing, which is also part of this box set of course, he is one of the, uh, the samurai, the vagrant samurai that loiter around the farm village eventually getting slaughtered by his own brother. So I mentioned uh, that the film was going to turn into a it's kind of a transformation and awakening in the character of Tsuda, but it's not only his. Uh, this story is at least as much about the awakening in his wife Hizuru as well. Um, and I think that, that element, that aspect, um, in addition to the move away from science fiction, is really uh, the, 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 this film's great growth compared to Tsukamoto's previous works. Um, his development of the female protagonist, uh, which of course would come to be uh, typical for his later films. Uh, women take uh, larger and larger roles and. Uh, roles of greater importance from Tokyo Fist onwards. Um, culminating of course in the Snake of June but also in Kotoko for example. Um, even Nightmare Detective has a female protagonist and the list goes on. Mm, 
So um, at this point, Tsuda was trying to regain his uh, his lost pride. Um, firstly, with an attempt at rough sex, re-establishing sort of like traditional male dominance as his source of pride in a in a, in a relationship, and he tries to does it again. Very traditional sources of male pride, you know, telling off his wife. <laughs> But there's an interesting contrast, of course, he's sitting there with that napkin tucked into his collar. Idiot. <laughs> Those are really interesting touches that say so much about that character of Tsuda and how he's been raised and what, he's, what his value set is. And of course, the scene only makes us more aware of the strength in, uh, in his wife, in Hizuru. Uh, which her seeming physical fragility, you know, the fact she's, she's very willowy. As I said, she was a model for cosmetics commercials. So um, she has a certain type of physique, which uh, is an interesting contrast with the transformation she will go through and the, the strength that, that so easily comes up inside her. And that makes that transformation not only stronger, the fact that that contrast exists. And it's certainly not true that um, you know previous female characters in Tsukamoto's films were weak, or that they were taken for granted. Really, I mean, look at, uh, at the character of uh, Momo-chan or uh, Miss Sariba in the Adventure of Denshu Kozo, but um, they were, in a sense, on the sideline of the main plot, which was always which always revolved around male characters. And Hizuru in Tokyo Fist is as much a part of the main plot as the two male characters. In fact, there is no story without her. You know, the men's actions revolve entirely around her, even though they continuously misunderstand her as well. They think it's about sex. and She has completely different ideas. She, of course, is, is breaking out of a certain degree of uh, um, submission almost institutionalized submission that she too has sort of taken for granted but is now completely realized is not going to work for her. And so she walks out of uh, her husband's life. Uh, at which point Tsuda decides there's a one solution, which is to start boxing himself. And when Kojima notices that, of course, knowing he knows that uh, Tsuda is absolutely no match for Kojima, but still, Kojima also knows that he's kind of on the way down. I mean, we saw that match of his earlier, which uh, this is also very funny. His first attempt at <laughs> physicality comes with a great degree, uh, a great deal of difficulty. It's all, it's all uh, suppressed, deeply suppressed, and it has to be dug up with great, uh, great effort on the part of Tsuda. So Kojima knows that he's kind of on the way down as a boxer. So if, if Tsuda is going to start training, it's going to start getting better. Inevitably, there's going to be a point where they're going to reach the same level. So that is pressure on, on Kojima. 
which will greatly inform his later actions. So the origin of the, the, I already talked about the origin of the project, but narratively uh, what Skamoto came up with initially as a story was based on Koji's life. It was called Morning Boxer. Uh, it was going to be a story about someone who boxes uh, in the morning uh, before going to work and then leading a, a normal everyman sort of a salary, life of a salaried employee. So the character initially was sort of a combination of the two characters of, of Kojima and Suda, initially. And Skamoto's mentioned that his plan for the style of the film was kind of to, to do a documentary-like. Um, and he was planning to uh, play the main role himself. Um, uh, but he wanted to uh, look for a scriptwriter because he wanted to, to shoot the film fairly quickly shoot it fairly fast so he thought instead of uh, also writing the script he would he thought he would uh, hire a script writer and then he would concern himself with every, all the other preparation so he hired a, a young filmmaker named Hisashi Saito who like Skamoto had also come up through the Pia Film Festival um, Saito came up with an idea uh, this idea of the love triangle um, but in his case, it was going to turn into a murder mystery, etc. And that latter part, uh, Tsukamoto was not really interested in, but he really liked the, the love triangle aspect. And since Saito was not really uh, inclined to do a rewrite of his script, um, that was the end of his collaboration. And Tsukamoto himself rewrote the script, leaving an original story credit for Saito. And uh, in the rewrite, um, Tsukamoto worked from that basic idea of the love triangle. So the original character that he had in mind then split into two characters, the two characters of Tsuda and Kojima. And then, of course, the, the door was wide open for Koji Tsukamoto to, uh, to step in and play one of the parts. And it's really interesting that this love triangle aspect, I mean, in a certain sense, already a little bit, it's in Tetsuo 2, even though it's not really a love triangle, you know, because there's never any uh, jealousy or cheating involved. But certainly there's the, the three characters, uh, two of whom are uh, a couple and then an outsider or interloper. But that will become much more strong and really quite typical for many of Tsukamoto's own later screenplays. Uh, so here it's uh, Kojima who sort of functions as the catalyst for uh, the hero's transformation, which is what, uh, what Yatsu, the, the, the metal fetishist in the Tetsuo films, did. Um, but uh, increasingly that three-person dynamic became a love triangle uh, of kinds, of sorts. In the later movies, it would certainly you know, be a pattern that would repeat in uh, films including Gemini, Snake of June, very much so, vital also to a certain extent. So, the casting of the, the younger brother 
inevitably brought some real life dynamics into the film as i said the, the characters mirror the story the characters mirrors uh, the, the real life story um uh, of course when you grow up as brothers uh, there's always a, a certain uh, degree of, of love hate and when you're kids you can really uh, really hate each other when you're adolescents you're always at each other's throats so inevitably that's that informed uh, the performances and the characters here and vice versa i mean the onset dynamics from making this film uh, also brought something into their real life relationship uh, and koji when i interviewed him for my book um, said that uh, for uh, quite a while after they'd finished shooting the film they continued to have this sort of actor and director relationship rather than a relationship as brothers but it is also true that since Tokyo Fist they have become much closer than they uh, were for a long time uh, before they made the film together the location of this house is also a really really wonderful choice and it always reminds me of uh, the house of the scientist Dr. Rotwang in uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis you know where this, this last old decrepit little structure from ages ago that somehow survives amid these towering skyscrapers and, and the post-modernity all around it um, a couple of times in the film uh, um, this is referred to as a uh, uh, you know, through a reference to uh, Akira Kurosawa's film High and Low, where they refer to it as heaven and hell. Um, of course, both Metropolis and, uh, and the films of Kurosawa were huge influences on Tsukamoto. In general, growing up as a film fan, and uh, are counted among uh, Tsukamoto's own favorites. But if you look at the shot and counter shot in this scene, then you know that the decaying building inevitably refers back to what we've seen the decaying cat you know the, the, um, also the, the the injury uh, the injuries on the boxers etc so it's a kind of a pocket of physicality amid a concrete wasteland because the counter shot of Tsuda there in the parking lot is there's nothing there but but just concrete asphalt um, the house uh, at the time it was located in, in Shinjuku area of Tokyo was an abandoned house and it was demolished actually shortly after the shoot the interiors are shot elsewhere the interiors are also shot in a real house but in a different location to the color scheme this interesting interplay with uh, red and blue contrast of red and blue really much like that so too um, this is also a really interesting shot you see Kojima's frustration that uh, Hizuru is really not intending to uh, have the kind of relationship that Kojima was hoping for from the very start and not only is she lying with her back to him she's lying in the reverse direction with her feet where his head are where his head is um, yeah the color scheme 
repeating that so too because it repeats this, the same thematic motif contrast between the blue which is the city the sterility the numbness and the red which is uh, the, the physicality initially Tsukamoto thought about shooting the film in black and white uh, which had to do with his idea of doing a documentary style using a documentary style and also the fact that a lot of the uh, like the mood boards he'd created a lot of the, the, the visual imagery that he had found um, in the during the development of the of the film and the story were uh, black and white archive photographs but because of raging bull he decided against doing black and white because it's you know kind of a boxing movie in black and white Tsuda not only getting better at, uh, at boxing but also being increasingly confident and you know in, in good shape and feeling really good uh, increasingly it's also interesting that a lot of the shots especially of the punching like here is our first person shots so it's kind of as if Tsukamoto is not only talking about waking up his protagonist, but he's also talking about waking up the audience, really. There's a lot of punches that are straight into the camera. Another funny thing that happens, of course, here is that Tsuda and Kojima increasingly uh, focus on each other. And Hizuru is kind of left out of the scene, as you just saw, she's peeking in, kind of. In her look, you can uh, sense a degree of, uh, of uh, jealousy even though at the same time she's probably enjoying seeing what is happening to them and how they're improving and changing of course Hizuru has already demonstrated her strength over Kojima you know just the, the, the hot needle scene where she, she pierces her her own ear and then Kojima shirking away closing his eyes not being able to watch And also where he says, uh, where she asks him, uh, rather tells him, tells Kojima that she that he is afraid of her. And, uh, how how Kojima says that she looks scary, etc. So the character of Kojima is really motivated throughout by fear. I mean, he's afraid to to get into the ring with this eventual. Uh, major opponent Kumagaki who he fights at the end um, of course he's uh, afraid of his own abilities uh, feels like he constantly has to prove them towards Hizuru um, but at the same time knowing that he is that he is inferior compared to her and then of course there's the challenge from Tsuda we can easily beat at this point but as I said a point is going to come where that's no longer the case 
Actually, a point is going to come where it doesn't really matter anymore later. Because the, the winning is not the issue for Suda. And as we just saw, a little montage, piercing the decaying cat, the, the, the boxing punch and the, 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 the bursting flesh, everything is aligned in a little montage. Everything is equal in meaning. Representing the physicality, the break, breaking out of uh, uh, the, the, phys the, the physical numbness and mental numbness of living in the city. Um, the other boxing trainer here, with the uh, very interesting sunglasses, is played by Koichi Wajima, who was an actual light middleweight world champion during the 19, late 1960s and the early 1970s. Uh, he was known, uh, he was famous for his uh, frog uppercut uh, move. Um, which uh, Koji Tsukamoto used as an example for what would become the fighting style of, of Tsuda later on. Um, so he was in, so Wajima was an inspiration on the choreography for the film. Um, so yeah, Wajima, he was, uh, he was a, a world champion, WBA and WBC titles both. And in his career, he won 31 times. I looked up the stats, 31 wins. Uh, of which 25 by technical knockout, six losses and one draw. And if you're interested in his, uh, his stats and his uh, history, you can check him out online because he has his own English language Wikipedia page even. And then we, uh, in that same scene, we saw the third boxing trainer played by Naoto Takenaka, a familiar face to anyone who must have watched uh, some Japanese films the last few years. Um, he was an actor previously in Hirokaru Goblin for Tsukamoto, and then uh, cast, and he himself as a director made a movie called Quiet Days of Firemen, in which he cast Shinya Tsukamoto as an actor. So one thing led to another, and this eventually led to Tokyo Fist, his appearance there. And then we move right into this flashback scene, very crucial for the, the characters of uh, uh, Tsuda and Kojima, in which... Uh, Chuishikawa, Shinyatsukamoto's uh, much-loved and much-missed film composer, plays the rapist. And of course, this uh, this is a key scene in the film, as I said, you know, as Tsuda, as a character, and after he starts boxing. And after all the, the, the frustrations that he's been going through lately, um, he's going through sensations that remind him of uh, his rage during and after this episode that happened to him in high school. This venting of pent-up anger. Um, after that, he gave up, as, uh, as Kojima informs us. And he became just an average guy. Um, and now he's 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 rediscovering that part of himself. Of course, they never get their revenge, as we are told, um, which is, I think, a really great choice to sabotage that in a sense in the in the writing of the script. Yeah, it would have been all too easy, I think, to create sort of like a, a will wish fulfillment scene 
through, uh, through a kind of vigilante justice. And it also the fact that that revenge never happens means that Suda never learns to, to know his own mettle in an actual fight. He doesn't know how good he is going to, who, how good he is in a fight. So that remains a big question mark for him. Um, yeah, in a sense, you could say that uh, that con that contributes to his uh, later overestimation of himself, even in the face of his own wife. But uh, that's something that might have been avoided if he had uh, if he had actually been able to uh, go for that revenge as a, as a high school kid, and then probably he would have lost. So yeah, there's a certain uh, there's there's a certain aspect there in that flashback of uh, the, the you know childhood and adolescence being a period of uh, in which the body and the mind um, are very free and unlimited and can can run wild, and that's something that uh, and becomes suppressed as 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 one becomes an adult. You know, it's like becoming an adult means giving up on your physical and emotional drives. Um, just as uh, Tsuda gave up on that promise to become a boxer. Um, that's something in Tokyo Fist that announces it's come out as next film, which is Bullet Ballet. Uh, because that one, that film really revolves around young people who continue to run wild for the simple fact that they refuse to join adult society. Yeah, so they refuse to uh, to compromise themselves. Don't see any great interest in becoming an adult according to uh, the definitions of being an adult that exist in society. <laughs> Incidentally, Hizuru has just now proven her power once again over Kojima by simply walking out on him. Certainly, uh, and the, the fighters and other boxers that appear in the film and also here in the gym were people who are most, for the most part, actual fighters uh, from uh, Koji's circle of friends and acquaintances and colleagues who were then cast in the film. <laughs> this point, of course, Tsuda has become so good at uh, working on the punching bag that we get this very rhythmic result which is something that uh, uh, Tsukamoto really wanted to use in the movie. Um, he lived, well, the place where he lived at the time was quite close to a boxing gym and sometimes when he passed by he would notice how rhythmic uh, the sound is when a really good boxer is, uh, is working out. So he asked uh, Chiwishikawa to uh, use that sound and rhythm in the soundtrack of the film. Um, so all in all, um, the expression of, uh, of certain themes and motifs that Kamoto was after with this film uh, come out really clear, but it was also really clear in his mind uh, what he wanted to do with the film on every level. And so in the end he said uh, that Tokyo Fist was the easiest of all his films to edit. It was done uh, 
really quite quickly. And using that music, by the way, into uh, overlap with the editing, going from uh, very fast sparring into Hizuru there, who's completely liberated, punching away through sheets of iron, um, is now wearing very tight clothes, very different from uh, her shapeless dresses earlier. Um, and it goes in a really interesting direction, an unexpected direction here, when she takes it all off, she removes all the piercings throws a glass of water over her head and as we will see soon she just goes back to wearing those shapeless dresses even though that the person even though the person inside the dresses is going to be a very different person than the one that was in them when the film started and from this point on it is her who inspires the men to accept their own inferiority towards her so she's going to uh, break them down and then allow them to rebuild themselves into new beings, which goes for both Tsuda and Kojima. Back at the hospital, Tsuda realizes his father has passed away. Everything is completely clean. Again, only moments after, after death has occurred. And uh, the nurse here is played by Nobu Kanaoka was the main female lead of Tetsuo 2 in her last appearance in its Kamoto film, unfortunately. The cityscape through the window is uh, Shinjuku, uh, the Shinjuku part of Tokyo, the west side again, which is where most of the shots of uh, these skyscrapers so typical of uh, Tsukamoto were done. Um, at that time Tokyo didn't have that many skyscraper areas, so um, it was essentially the only place where you could shoot uh, these, these kinds of cityscapes. Which is kind of paradoxical, since Kamoto suggests through his films that this is the reality of city life in Japan in general, and Tokyo uh, uh, particularly. Um, but you have to remember that for him, as I mentioned uh, in one of the earlier commentaries, he grew up in the early 1960s in the, in the very center of Tokyo. So he saw the reconstruction of Tokyo very much still from um, uh, a, a landscape very much marked by uh, the damage of, of wartime. And very quickly in the early 60s, suddenly working towards the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, uh, of which the major locations were quite close to Tsukamoto's uh, childhood home. So he saw all these buildings rising above him as a child. So to him, looking up at very tall buildings, even though perhaps those buildings at the time were for an adult not that tall, if you're a child looking up at them, um, that was his reality. So even though at the time when he made Tokyo Fist, um, Tokyo as a whole was not really yet a, a high-rise city, uh, with the exception of certain areas. Uh, to Tsukamoto, from very early age onwards, uh, that was the reality of living in Tokyo always. This staying up all night sequence is also really interesting. You, know, you see him walking around in the days, going back to uh, certain locations 
Um, among these, again, sterile environments, but he's he's different. It's not it's not the same as the the previous state of numbness. It's not desensitized. It's just a certain emptiness. Because he's gained something as a as a person, but he's lost a lot as well. Uh, notably, you know, the people who are closest to him. Tokyo Fist was uh, completed in 1995, as I said. It won the grand prize at the, the then Tokyo edition of the Sundance Film Festival. There's no longer any Tokyo edition, but at the time there was. Um, and the film won the, the top prize there. Um, it got some prize money, which uh, Tsukamoto used to blow up the film from 16mm on which it was shot to 35mm and he said that with what he had left he paid his crew so must have been a nice nice amount of money the film actually did was really well received in japan it uh, was it was one of the films in the uh, the traditional annual 10 best list of kinema jumpo magazine um, and in 96 it was selected for the locarno film festival where it won a youth jury prize internationally so, as well. It did, it did really quite well. Um, was sold for distribution in a number of countries. And in fact, I remember seeing it in Holland uh, uh, in its regular theatrical, uh, theatrical release back in, I would say, 1996. So here we start to uh, meet Kojima's next appointment. The fearful Kumagaki. Which, of course, the fear of that Kojima is going to have to uh, overcome for him to completely achieve his liberation. And here comes Hizuru. Now going to make them accept their inferiority. And look how she is back in that shapeless dress again. There's a point in between uh, Tetsuo 2, in the commentary for Tetsuo 2, I mentioned that Kamoto traveled um, abroad quite a lot uh, uh, to festivals that showed the film, and they continued showing it for uh, quite a while, several years in fact. Um, I mentioned that he met a number of filmmakers that uh, were fans of his Tetsuo films, like Gaspar Noé and Marc Caro and Alejandro Hodorowsky. Um, Scamato also went to the United States and one of the people he met there was Quentin Tarantino who was doing the rounds of North American festivals uh, with Reservoir Dogs at the time. Um, 
they must have exchanged uh, contacts because from that meeting a little bit later which this is after the pulp fiction was was finished um, tarantino suggested you know teaming up for a third tetsuo film this is a very legendary story which uh, a lot of Tsukamoto fans know, but not everybody knows the details of what actually happened. So that was going to be uh, the Tetsuo in America. Uh, at the same time, Tsukamoto had an idea for uh, a, to do a movie about a, with a flying Tetsuo. So one or both of those ideas uh, were, were supposed to become the basis for uh, a third Tetsuo film that was to be made kind of immediately after the second Tetsuo. So it was it was for a while intended to be Tsukamoto's next film after Tetsuo 2. Um, the idea was that uh, Tarantino was going to write a, a basic treatment and then his Pulp Fiction co-writer Roger Avery was going to write the screenplay. Uh, Tarantino would produce and Tim Roth was going to play the lead part. Um, all of this uh, went on for a while. Um, Tsukamoto, because of the long, the, the long distance and because he was used to working very independently, kind of uh, wasn't really sure whether that was the way to go. Even though Tarantino guaranteed that they were going to do for, going to make the film for three million US dollars, so that uh, there was no great financial risk and there would be no great artistic pressure on on Tsukamoto. You know, things, uh, things uh, went their ways and Tarantino started working on what would become Jackie Brown. Um, things were quiet. Scamato sort of lost interest in doing a, a third Tetsuo so shortly after the first two. And he was already toying with the idea of what would become Tokyo Fist as well as with the idea of what would become Bullet Ballet, which of course he would make after Tokyo Fist. And he was more enthusiastic about those ideas than about doing a third Tetsuo film at that point. So things just sort of like, you know, everybody went their separate ways, really. Uh, there was the, the plug was never pulled on the project. And of course, the idea of the Tetsuo being connected with the United States or with America, an American setting uh, remained somewhere at the back of Tsukamoto's minds. Uh, of course, lots of people asked him about it in, in, in years afterwards. It would eventually lead to Tetsuo the Bullet Man, which was not exactly Tetsuo in America. And was not exactly a, a great success, nor was it a greatly independently made film. And these factors are all connected, but since Tetsuo 3 is not part of this set and we are not now looking at a Tetsuo film, I shall leave it at that. So, Hizuru is now sort of uh, moving in and out of the lives of Tsuda and Kojima. Um, overpowering them really with her own strength and uh, forming a huge contrast by which the men can uh, 
admit to their inferiority as, as Kojima is doing in this scene, admitting to his great and deep fear. But the point is for them to really reach their lowest step, after which she sort of helps to pick them back up again and, and boost their self-confidence. In a way that you wonder, I'm, I'm inclined to say selfless, but it's not really the case. Because it's not like she uh, departs from their lives entirely. If she wanted to start a completely new life by herself, she could. But she doesn't in the context of this story. So, um, because she stays around, and somehow there's a need on her side also to um, remain connected to these two characters. And eventually, of course, she and Suda will get back together. Yeah, for Kojima now there's only one way forward. He's already, he's already, basically the previous scene was his, his lowest point. He realized he can't get any lower, so uh, stepping, stepping back and, and uh, giving up the match against Komagaki is not an option. So all he can do is train for it and he's a little uh, cheat. <laughs> given to him by his coach, which already sort of indicates like, yeah, you know, there's, there's ways to, there's ways to, to, to fight this fight, to win this fight, perhaps even, if you think in a different way. And then interestingly, just as a, Kojima starts to train for this really important, crucial match. Tsuda sort of gets in the way, increases his uh, challenges toward him, and eventually they are going to square off against each other and get, uh, they will pummel each other. <laughs> not exactly within an inch of their lives, but certainly in the, to a degree, that, which is not very smart for, uh, for Kojima to do uh, on the eve of a very important match. This is a very funny scene where he goes crazy on the other guy pretending he is Kojima. Of course, this is the best thing that Kojima at this point could, pos probably, get, could possibly get because he realizes the threat that, uh, that Suda poses and he realizes how much better of a fighter Suda has become. And uh, even if he's not nearly as good a fighter as Kojima, the, the, his rage and his drive is uh, an extra factor. 
that'll make him stronger. So uh, in, in the preparation up to the big fight, uh, this is definitely a hurdle he will have to take. Incidentally, the film uh, took four months to shoot, which by its Komoto standards for uh, independent production is not actually all that long. It was probably the shortest uh, of all his films up until that point, but still quite a bit longer than the, the one month that was originally planned for the shoot. Um, so there was a four month delay already and then a four month shooting period. Uh, they shot seven days a week um, for four months, if you can imagine that. And uh, they shot uh, the first two months. They did all the dialogue scenes, and then all the action and fights come come later, came later. Um, for you imagine for Koji as a first time actor. I mean, for any professional actor already, that would be a, a tough schedule. But for a first timer like Koji, you would imagine it would be very very hard as well. Um, but he said that he found it no harder than his previous life. You know, the working at a restaurant from early afternoon until late, very late at night. He also realized that making films is much less, a, much less of a routine sort of activity, where otherwise all his days were roughly the same. He was always in the same place doing the same thing. Uh, making films was always different every day. So, despite of the, the, the tough schedule, he said he quite enjoyed making the film, which of course helped to inspire his, his choice to continue as an actor. So, as I said, Koji was uh, one of basically his next film after this would be. Uh, Full Metal Yakuza with Takashi Miike, um, which was shot at the same time as Takamoto was shooting Bullet Ballet. And in fact, at one point, they shot in the same location, uh, a, a big building, and they were shooting on different, uh, different floors. Nevertheless, they saw each other when they arrived and they, they saw each other when they left. And um, Takashi Miike wrote uh, uh, an interesting little uh, wrote down an interesting little memory of, of that particular moment, which would become um, the foreword of my book, Iron Man the Cinema of Shinya Tsukamoto. And he said he arrived and Tsukamoto was very concentratedly working on a particular shot. And then at the end of the day, when uh, Miike was completely finished with all the day's uh, sh uh, sh shots. He left and he f went to say goodbye and thank you to Tsukamoto, who was still on the same shot that he had been on at the beginning <laughs> when Miike arrived. Uh, that was for Miike a great sign of uh, the incredible power and determination of Tsukamoto, which he says he could never, uh, which he could never equal, Miike said. I asked Tsukamoto about this later and he said, yeah, that's true, but actually in between those two moments I did a lot of other different setups, so it's not like I was on that one shot the whole time.
So, after bringing um, Kojima down to his lowest point, Shizuru now comes back to her husband and does the same thing for him, beating him to a pulp. Um, after su surviving his, his punch, which basically does nothing for her except make her laugh at her husband. And then, of course, the fact that the, the horseradish breaks um, is a highly symbolic and very Freudian, even though it happens during an action during which the man tries to show his strength. Of course, greatly backfires. He cries and she laughs. So, yeah, the whole idea of the you know masculinity the, the, the masculine values that Tsuda has lived by, the sort of macho delusion, has to be completely broken before he can be reborn and live again, which is going to happen from this point onwards. And these really huge, highly exaggerated bruises that you see now on this in this scene particularly, but throughout the whole film. Um, Somewhat overdone in a sense, but not overdone without uh, without a reason. You know, it's, uh, it's if you look at where the character comes from and what uh, you know is in his numbness, what what this physicality means. I mean, going back to that shot when he first starts to box, and he has to really dig up something inside himself. How difficult it is to, for him to simply be physical. Then uh, you know, this these really grotesque. Injuries and bruises kind of express uh, the, the, the great contrast, you know, the unthinkable um, level that that of level of physicality that that happens on for uh, for his character. You know, it shows it shows from uh, how far he has to come and how far he has to go to go from one level to the other. So, as you see, she keeps going back and forth between Tsuda and Kojima, just giving them the minimum of, of what is required. Tsuda needs a bunch of punches, Kojima needs to be uh, humiliated in a sense, or rather has to admit to his own humility, and now he needs a little bit of the uh, the sex that he always expected or hoped to get from Hizuru. And it's interesting that um, through uh, realizing that she needs uh, the, f the physicality of pain, that she, wake that she wakes up in a sense during that scene. He finds a way to hit the right buttons, so to speak. Interesting, it's difficult to hear, of course, on during this commentary track, but the music during that particular sex scene just now is very, very different from the, 
the Tetsuo style of, uh, of, of music that sort of seems to still define, uh, you know, Tsukamoto music or the, the, the collaboration between Tsukamoto and, and composer Chiwishikawa. But um, as I just pointed out, there is a incredible diversity in the work that these two men have, uh, have done together and in the various uh, scores that Tsukamoto has composed and played for, for Tsukamoto. And of course, sadly, uh, we're not going to get any more Jewish Kawa scores since he passed away quite recently, sadly, after uh, having been ill for quite a long time. So uh, the, his, the music for killing is probably the last Jewish Kawa music that we're going to hear in Tsukamoto film, and even that was not really composed uh, for that film. Chiwishikawa um, died before he could really start working on, on the score for killing. So Tsukamoto asked Ishikawa's widow to give him access to uh, the unused music that Ishikawa had made, had recorded. Um, and then uh, using that music and editing it in certain ways, he created, in a sense, in a patchwork way, created the score for killing the final score of Jewish Khan. Uh, just now you saw a, a very wide shot of uh, the, the, the west side of Shinjuku, the skyscraper district uh, that I mentioned earlier. And as you could see in that shot, everything around it is, is low-rise buildings. Yeah. So these, these skyscrapers you keep seeing during this film, all these cutaways, those are constantly the same area. Those are constantly the same buildings. Of course, that's what filmmaking is all about. You know, you can, it's all about uh, choosing the right composition. I mean, your camera in just the right way to create a certain illusion you know if you move the camera slightly to the left or slightly to the right or slightly up or down you get something completely different so it's this whole one perfect shot idea which is not well it's not the essence of cinema of course but uh, it's it's certainly a major part of it and Skamoto has always been very uh, very adept at using bits and pieces of uh, of whatever locations he was shooting in, and then uh, creating a composition through editing to uh, to basically create the Tsukamoto world. Yeah, remember this is the after all the the suburban settings of uh, of the adventure of Denchi Kozo and the first Tetsuo, he never went back there. So those were certainly, uh, I think, making those two films were certainly really good lessons for him in, uh, in terms of the composition and choice of locations, etc. And, and for building the world of the film. And of course, in Tetsuo, the first Tetsuo, that works really well because of that. So sort of like run down, a very analog kind of scrap feeling. But as he started more talking more clearly about life in the city, he just he couldn't go back there. So now the rivals at last are in the ring, sparring. 
And Kojima, of course, knows that Suda means him real harm. So in that sense, uh, in that sense alone, it's uh, it's a really good preparation for the match with uh, the killer Kumagaki, who also means is going to mean him true harm. But at the same time, <laughs> they're pummeling each other with unrestrained relish, really. Uh, the outcome is not... Yeah, there's, there's another very wide shot of that same skyscraper district in Shinjuku surrounded by low-rise building. So the outcome of this sparring match is really not important because it's for both of them. This sparring match is, is their point of liberation. Yeah, this is really the, the, the final turning point for both of them. Um, and after this they will be uh, with with still a lot of pain, but that's the whole point, to feel pain. And they will they will have achieved their new state. Uh, on the one hand, for uh, Kojima, it's, it is uh, as a, a, a bruised and wounded, but still a victorious fighter in the ring. And for Tsuda, it's in the, the complete um, embracing of uh, of his body and everything it is capable of, you know, including the pain and the profuse bleeding. Incidentally, is this a good point at which to mention the similarities between Tokyo Fist and David Fincher's Fight Club, perhaps? Um, yeah, uh, I haven't watched Fight Club in quite a while, I have to admit. Perhaps I should have watched it before doing this commentary. But Fight Club, yeah, from 1999, so four years after Tokyo Fist. Um, of course, based on the on the novel, but the novel was from 1996, so also after Tokyo Fist, though. A little bit too tightly after Tokyo Fist. I'm sure Tokyo Fist was not shown in the United States before 1996, so uh, it would not have uh, influenced uh, Chuck Palahniuk's novel. But I have absolutely no doubt that it certainly influenced David Fincher's film, which uh, takes a lot after Tokyo Fist, including the, the, the love triangle aspect. Um, although eventually, um, instead of uh, the two male protagonists being rivals, they ended up, of course, being literally two sides of the same person. Kojima's final punch, and again this greatly exaggerated but very meaningfully uh, used uh, image of, of uh, injury that's only going to get worse, of course, as he goes into the hospital next. Um, a scene that is uh, quite a contrast with the, the hospital scenes that we saw earlier involving Tsuda's father. Um, in his case, the physicality, his energy, uh, symbolized by his blood, just won't stop flowing. Um, it will not be restrained. It, it, it completely rebels against any attempt on the part of the nurses and doctors to clean it up and to, or to rein in, in a sense, his physicality. So the blood there is a hugely, hugely symbolic um, in its presence as well as in the, uh, the copious amounts of it that uh, flow, if you want to call it flowing, it's more like a waterfall.
directly into the match, the final match with Kumagaki. On that great shot where they're almost punching each other. Incidentally, the young lady in pigtails over there, you might recognize her, that's Julie Dreyfus, who would later play Sophie Fatal in uh, Kill Bill Volume 1 by Quentin Tarantino. At the time, she was sort of like a television celebrity. Um, this is what this was one of her first uh, film parts. Tsukamoto knew her, I think, through his own work as an actor in television. Incidentally, those shots of uh, the, the audience at the boxing match, you can see that the performances by the extras are very, very animated. Very, very strong, very lively. So Tsukamoto really uh, directed them as, as you know, fully-fledged actors. Normally extras just feel like they stand in the background and they don't really need to act, but certainly not the case here. Certainly looks like it's a full house, but it's the same group of extras which gets moved around <laughs> to fill the shots each time. Um, in parallel montage, uh, we get at least Suda's vision of uh, the rebirth of his wife Hizuru. Now he finally understands that she too has been reborn into a, a new person and what what was inside her all this time. Of course we've already seen her take off her piercings so that's the, the shot that we keep seeing now that we can't keep cutting back to is not uh, the, the reality within the film but uh, Tsuda's vision of it. And again the, the, the motif, the logic Throughout this montage is, uh, is pain, injury, blood copiously flowing in all three characters. There's the frog uppercut that uh, Koji used from uh, the actual moves of Koichi Wajima, used into the, uh, the choreography of the final fight scene and in fact is the, the move that wins him the match. Uh, right through all the threats of pain, of defeat, of death that he suffered under. The fear of all of that is, is uh, he has uh, conquered. There's a funny little anecdote where uh, uh, when this film was getting screened, Kojima, uh, sorry, Koji Tsukamoto invited his, uh, uh, the, the real life owner of the gym where he works out, still works out, and brought him over to see the film. And afterwards, the gym owner said, well, Koji, Koji, you finally boxed a great match. Great, very enigmatic shot. Going back to black and white, all of a sudden. Of Kojima disappearing into a hole in his bed. And through this image of literal enlightenment of Hizuru and her smile that seems to suggest acceptance of her husband. 
and we come back to the city which hasn't changed at all but as we're about to discover Tsuda has changed uh, physically with that left eye or his right eye I should say the viewers left having been permanently damaged but giving him a suddenly a great new strength and self-assurance and look at the faint smile that sort of hovers across his face in this here in this semi-close-up and that forms the almost final shot of the film before we see this almost living punching bag all the life that they that they gained from boxing seems to have been uh, seems to have animated the punching bag as well so this has been tokyo fist and uh, thanks a lot for listening